Hey folks, this episode of Butter With That is dedicated to the memory of Patricia Stout, a loving wife, mother, sister, and aunt, and a big supporter of the show, as well as a lover of all things cinema. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Butter With That, a movie podcast where some friends from Philadelphia chat about lots of different types of movies. Uh, This month, we or this sequence of movies, we've been talking about directors we really like, and we're going to continue that theme in just a moment. Uh, But before we dive into our director's spotlight theme, Just uh, want to give a huge shout out to the movie network we are currently a part of, Movie John. Check out a whole range. Woo! Check out a whole range of different uh, other podcasts on the Movie John network. Um, So we're really, really excited excited to be a part of that community. And uh, how is how's everyone doing on this May evening afternoon? Um. I can't remember if I talked about this on the podcast yet, but I watched Mortal Kombat, the the new one, and I liked it. I have no idea about anything, anything in the Mortal Kombat verse or who anybody is. I was just hearing about it from people at work, from um, people I live with. And then finally, what really pushed me over the edge was Cardi B tweeted about it and said it was a good movie. So I watched it. I enjoyed it. I heard that it's like not great from people who are a fan of the series, but I don't know the difference. Um, But I did want to share a good piece of of news with everybody, which is I bought a pair of Crocs and they came in today and they are the most comfortable thing. And I feel like I'm finally in my true form wearing Crocs. It's amazing. Uh, A huge congratulations to you, Sam. (laughs) Do you have... Uh, those adornments for them? I do. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so I got um, Captain America's shield, a stormtrooper, a T-Rex, and an otter. Oh, dope. What color are they? Um, The T-Rex is red. And then the otter is just like brown. Everything else is like their colors. What's your base color? Like, oh. what is the croc color? <laughs> Jesus Christ, of course. <laughs> no, I mean, I literally, that was the vaguest question. <laughs> no, that was me being <laughs> stupid. Uh, they're black. They're black. I wanted to go, like, with something really sensible. Because <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't know if I was going to like them, you know? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, no, that's awesome. Yeah, like, nice comfort walking shoe that you can decorate with things that like make you happy. I mean, what more could you honestly ask for? Nothing. And my roommates literally hate it. They're all disgusted by it. But you know what? That like, I like feed off of that. So like the more people say, ew, the more I'm like, (laughs) yeah, you're just going to dig your heels in to (laughs) your comfortable Crocs. But it's, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, that's wonderful. I'm all about comfy footwear. I'm currently wearing my rubber Birkenstocks, which I wear everywhere. They're not even like leather. They're like this weird foam rubber that I've had for years and years. And they were white. And now they are a very dirty <laughs> white. <laughs> and uh, they are gross, but my fave comforting shoes. So they're kind of like Crocs material. Uh, listeners out there, if you do 
didn't know, we apparently just got a sponsorship from Crocs because we have been spending, and Birkenstocks, we've been spending a lot of time talking about shoe brands. Yeah, we really have been. You, you would think this is a shoe podcast, but it's a movie podcast. In, indeed. And, you know, just to, to one more thing to keep the shoe conversation going. Please, uh, please. I recently learned that I can fit into a not the largest, but like the second largest size in um, children's shoes. So I will only use that for chaos and evil. Um, you know, if I ever commit a murder, I'm going to do it in Cat and Jack shoes, you know? That's brilliant. And you probably get really great selections of colors and designs. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Also great, great way to get away with murder. Um <laughs> Speaking of, yeah, uh, any other things that either new footwear people have just uh, fallen in love with or new movies they've seen or new movies about footwear that they've seen? Can I I'm share sure they had very comfortable shoes in Mortal Kombat because in order to combat effectively, you must have good arch support. I feel like there's a missed uh, opportunity from Dr. Scholes to have some product placement. Oh, we've already done Crocs, Birkenstocks. We might as well just add Dr. Scholl's to this uh, promotional list. I would like to bring up a movie I'm excited about coming out. Uh, there was a new trailer for uh, a new movie by A20, uh, distributed by A24 called The Green Knight, uh, directed by David Lowry, who Christine directed a ghost story and wrote a ghost story. Oh, you know my favorite movie. <laughs> um, and this movie has is starring um, Dev Patel, Aaron Kellyman, who was just in Falcon or Soldier, Barry Keegan, who we who's been in you know American Animals and you know other movies, Alicia Vikander. So this looks like a pretty stellar movie uh, with a great trailer that just came out. Uh, it was supposed to come out last like June, but then coronavirus happened, and so it got delayed to this July. Uh, so the trailer just came out. Definitely recommend taking a look. Uh, based off of the Arthurian legend. I was just uh, ask. Okay, so I have seen an image of this because it's Dev Patel in like. Arthurian crown gear and he's bearded right mm -hmm. I was like wow that looks really really good um I'll definitely keep keep an eye and an ear out for that I think it's going to be good the green knight Gwen, Gawain and there was there was like Gawain and then there Gwen. were lots of G's I remember after yeah, like, reading Once great. in Future King yeah yeah so many anyway I'm excited too so I've been watching Mare of Easttown <laughs> <laughs> and I just love reading internet articles, like breaking down the like, like Philly Eastern PA accent, like just every little thing that's like, oh, this is like classic Philadelphia. Or this is like classic. I'm, it's been it's been really funny to like watch the show and read all of the commentary about it. Yeah, it's also nice to get back into like a week to week, like, oh. Can't binge, gotta wait. Are are any of you uh, guys watching it? <laughs> My mom and several other friends recommended it. So uh, maybe I'll wait till it's all out and then just binge it in one weekend. Yeah, I uh, I would probably think it's very bingeable um, once all the episodes are stacked together. But yeah, it's definitely a lot of characters. I like have a hard time honestly keeping track of everything. But did you see the that's been no that they did about it it's it's basically just them all with the, the delco accent 
It's funny at first, and then it just gets annoying. Yeah. Um, uh, like all of Delco, like, like Delco in general, that should be the county motto. <laughs> all, all Delco, all day, yeah. Um, but yeah, that's what that's all I've been watching. So this week, as I had mentioned, we are talking, uh, or this is a con- this week is a continuation of our current theme, which is uh, director spotlight. Us talking about not only uh, a favorite director or a director that we've want- been wanting to talk about on this podcast, but also talking about and focusing on a movie that we think is a nice introduction into this director's voice or style. And this week, uh, we are going to be talking about the director, Kelly Reitgart. So for listeners who have been with us for a while, I'm sure the name Kelly Reitgart has come up. Well, it would have come up. We did a a movie of hers, Meek's Cutoff, which is a uh, movie that has gone down in butter with that lore (laughs) as being probably the slowest movie (laughs) that, that we've watched. Um, but, um, ever since then, Kelly Reichardt has really been a director that I've been following for, for a long time and really have enjoyed not only watching her movies, but in preparing for this podcast, I've watched a lot of interviews with her and I've watched a lot of interviews with actors who work with her and she's just a really interesting person. And it's really been wonderful to listen to her talk about her process and, and her movies. And so we're going to be talking about a movie called First Cow, which actually came out uh, in March 2020. <laughs> Not a great time for any movies, obviously, to be coming out. And that was supposed to really be her big break, so to speak. It came out, uh, Connor, you brought up A24. Uh, A24 produced it, and so it really had a platform to hopefully reach a lot of people in theaters, but obviously in 2020, all theaters, uh, in March, all theaters shut down. And so that really kind of ended the, what I thought was going to be a a really big movie for her and her really big break. Um, Before we go into, to First Cow specifically as a movie, just a little bit of context for for Kelly Reichardt. Kelly Reichardt works closely with a writer Jonathan Raymond, uh, who shares a lot of the screenwriting credits on a lot of her movies. Uh, and for the most part, she works with very small budgets, uh, quick f- uh, filmmaking time uh, time period timelines, and she edits all of her own movies to to save money uh, and. Actually, First Cow was her biggest budget of $2 million. <laughs> <laughs> and her average budgets are around $300,000 to $500,000. So that really gives you a sense of the, the really small budget she works with and kind of the scope of kind of the ind- independent movies that she makes. Her de- movie debut was this movie, River of Grass, that came out in 1997. But she talks about in interviews how she couldn't get another movie made or movie financed until 10 years later. And she's talked about uh, kind of the independent film world being kind of uh, like a boys club and the really challenges of getting a movie funded and financed, especially if you're focusing on storylines that might not be terribly exciting to um, seemingly to want to to, to, excuse me, finance. 
But um, people talk about her visual, uh, rhythmic, temporal language. She really loves to film elements of process, characters' chores, the physical routines of life is a phrase that I've uh, I've heard come up in, in interviews. And so, yeah, 2020, March, uh, she released First Cow. Uh, it was based on a novel by Jonathan Raymond uh, called Half-Life. And it was a, kind of one sliver of a story that was a larger part of this longer, uh, that was a part of a larger novel that he had written and this this movie, First Cow, it stars actors Orion Lee and John Magaro. And the movie explores colonial land theft and capitalism of 1820, the 1820s, um, telling the story of two men. Uh, Orion Lee plays a Chinese immigrant named King Lu. And John Magaro plays this white cook from Maryland whose name is Cookie Figowitz. And both of them strike up a friendship and try to start making an oily cake business out of stolen milk from the first cow brought to this area uh, by a wealthy Englishman who brings this this cow to uh, Chinook land that was then in the 1820s being occupied by fur trappers, traders, and settlers. So the whole the whole story is set on uh, Chinook land near the Columbia River in what's now. Um, Oregon. So I sort of thought about the movie in three parts, uh, like uh, plot wise, kind of the first part, the opening, these two characters establishing their relationship, their friendship, and thinking up this business that they're going to start. The middle section of the movie being this uh, milk heist caper of sorts. And Connor in a previous text thread was like, yeah, First Cow is kind of like a heist movie. Kind of a lot has a lot of the elements that we talked about in a previous theme um, when we talked about heist movies. And then the final section, which is really once we'll we'll talk about over the course of this conversation, shit really hits the fan where these two characters, Cookie and King Lou, are caught stealing the milk to try to make these oily cakes and continue their business uh, where they have to escape. And it's sort of do they pursue this escape? individually, uh, or do they rely on their relationship and kinship to stay together um, and meet a tragic demise, which you realize in the very opening scenes of the movie. So before we kind of talk about the elements of the plot, uh, I just want to kind of, I wanted to open it up to initial thoughts or reactions to seeing this. I believe, Dave, you had seen First Cow before, correct? Yeah, this would be my second time seeing the movie, or uh, second and a half time, I guess, maybe. Okay, second and a half time. And Sam and Connor, this was your first time seeing First Cow. But Sam is a Kelly Reichardt veteran, <laughs> <laughs> having seen um, Mix Cut Off for a previous episode. Um, so, I'll, yeah, I'll just throw it out to you guys. Uh, what were your impressions, either rewatching the movie or watching this for the first time, or comparing to Kelly Reichardt movies? Uh, I'd say returning to it was uh, was really great. I found it to be perhaps um, in Reichardt's sort of pronounced and signature style, very uh, methodical and very uh, uh, taking taking a lot of time to sort of like soak and simmer in sequences um, rather than propelling them forward through the pace of its editing and so on. So um, I found it to, the first time to be very much in a league with, uh, say, like Meek's Cutoff, which I also enjoyed. 
But then this time, having gone back and uh, and watching this movie again, I think uh, there are a lot of character moments that really shine. There's a really pronounced tenderness to the strength and strength to its editing, uh, especially as concerns. You know, it, it, it's sort of more methodical and thoughtful pace, um, as well as its really beautiful sense of natural light um, in a lot of different times of day. Uh, it feels extremely lived in and extremely convincing. Uh, Takes some interesting stances on the established or more traditional uh, cinematic narratives surrounding westward expansion um, and this sort of like off off portrayed like very masculine rugged kind of uh, pioneer lifestyle and uh, and it really takes some interesting I think shots at diffusing that and, and placing you elsewhere within that world which is really interesting and a real strength of the movie so yeah I really enjoyed it the second time second and a half time around I would say that <clears throat> overall I enjoyed first cow I don't know if I would call it like a home run for me, but definitely after I have not seen Meeks cut off or another Kelly Reichardt movie, but I just, I didn't quite know what to expect. So I just kept my expectations open and it took me, I think a little bit for the movie to win me over, but Dave, you already brought up a lot of great points about lived, you know, um, this lived in quality, methodical uh, for me, the phrase slice of life kind of came up a lot. Um, it's, one thing I love about the podcast is that, you know, with these themes, we're sort of able to look at a bunch of different movies. And last week we talked about uh, Kira Kurosawa's Throne of Blood, and that was my episode. And I brought up how it embraces a lot of heightened theatrical kind of tendencies when First Cow is like the exact opposite direction of what it borrows from sort of at least my theatrical vocabulary of like Strindberg, Stanislavski, of this sort of slice of life. Uh, movement of let's portray real people doing real things where the stakes are found in the ordinary. Um, this mm. cow is not a radioactive cow that's going to blow up the city and cookie has to <laughs> the last cow. <laughs> the last cow. Um, it's a really humble story. And I think I was really won over by her characters um, and some really excellent moments of editing, moments of shot composition. Um, there's a moment I want to talk about later where there's a conversation inside a house and you see Cookie uh, and them coming into the house as this, this kind of ominous conversations happening. So there were lots of moments that I really loved, but overall, the movie did feel kind of slow, <laughs> but I did enjoy watching it. I now own it on Amazon, so uh, it is not a purchase I regret uh, and I will I can see myself revisiting it in the future. So um, I went into this movie cautiously optimistic. Um, Christine, I know how much this movie means to you. So I was like, you know, I'm really, no matter what happens, I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm going to feel positive about it. And so what I'll say is um, what I really appreciated about the movie and really loved is the, the tender friendship between the two main characters and I watched this movie with a roommate and we really went back and forth of what kind of love story it was between the two and you know both of us were like saying oh man you know I, I wish like it it felt like the the subtext was like gay subtext and you know it's it's frustrating when all it does is like remain subtext and like you could see like a, a relationship like that but ultimately I I came down on I think that we never really see healthy tender male relationships like male friendships on screen really that look like this and so rather add like any kind of romantic 
parts to it. I I think like I prefer it the way that it was kind of ambiguous. So um, I really appreciated the just the the relationship between the two. Yeah, I'm so I'm so glad you brought up that element, Sam, of depictions of masculinity within this this movie because um, and depictions of male friendship. This is a theme that actually recurs in a lot of uh, Kelly Reichardt's movies. Uh, actually, the movie Old Joy, which was the movie that she made 10 years after she couldn't get another movie finance. That was like her second attempt to be like, okay, I'm making movies again is about a male friendship, just a two day hike in the woods in which we watch these two men talk about their relationship and their friendship. And you can see, whereas Cookie and King Lou's relationship grows stronger over the course of first cow old joy is about this dissipating uh, friendship. Um, and it's, it's both of them are really touching, but it's, these are themes that she definitely explores. And I, I'm also glad you brought that up because it connects to something that Dave had brought up. Uh, a lot of this, this movie, as well as Kelly's other movies, ta- take the sort of Western uh, and Westward expansion storylines and kind of subvert what you might, those expectations and those types of characters in other Western movies and explores them through different lenses and through different types of characters. So I think that uh, a question I had wanted to ask you guys was how you think masculinity is depicted in the movie uh, and at which you had talked so beautifully right there, uh, Sam, you talked, you'd answered so beautifully this question. And it definitely, in other characters within the movie, she kind of draws these comparisons between the energy and the friendship and the relationship between Lou and Cookie versus like the fur trappers. One of my favorite scenes is right at the beginning when uh, you are first introduced to the character of Cookie, who is this employed cook for fur trappers who are making their way across this region, basically ravaging the lands, like killing every beaver in sight to make money off beaver pelts. And they, these, <laughs> these like burly gruff men are always yelling and they're fighting with one another. And Cookie's just like trying to <laughs> scavenge for, <laughs> uh, mushrooms and lizards and all sorts of things. I mean, I think that's a great thing that's revisited a lot through this movie is that our, our focus is so essentially on, um, on King and on uh cookie as these more like, um, like tender footed, less, um, like kind of braggadocious and machismo driven characters to the point that like they're, they're surrounded by characters that as you, as you mentioned, Christine are like these fur trappers who are constantly yelling or quarreling or like it comes to blows with them a lot of the time. But every time that action starts to happen, it fo- the camera just sort of strays away and then just keeps it off screen such that it, it demands that our focus is a, a kind of, subversive tenderness to, to masculinity in, in that world to the degree that the sort of more uh, traditionally explored and, and cinematically uh, canonical, like pioneer male characters are sidelined. They're pushed out of frame, which is really interesting. And I think something that you were mentioning also, Sam, as far as like really what 
what is their relate? Like, why can't we see more of their relationship and really understand what these characters mean to one another? I'm not quite sure how many days this movie takes place over the course of, but it's like probably like two months max, maybe. Um, and really, it's it's not a whole lot of time. So it's like, oh, if okay, spoil alert, but not because it's revealed within the first five minutes of the movie that these two characters mm-hmm. die side by side. Um, their skeletons are unearthed underneath the soil by Aaliyah Shawcott, who's this woman who unearths them with her dog at the beginning of the movie. Uh, this- and so, well, I was just going to say, and so mm-hmm. Kelly Reichardt loves ambiguity. She talks about it a lot. She She really doesn't like to explicitly say much of anything when it comes to like her characters, which can be frustrating. And I've seen in some other movies, it's really frustrating that she doesn't push and really kind of break into the internal workings of some characters. And so I think those can be flaws in some other her movies. But I think in this movie, it's her embracing ambiguity and a recognition that these two people meet for a very short period of time. And that if they had survived and lived, maybe uh, maybe a new stage in their relationship would have would have blossomed and developed. But the tenderness is there and they you find out that they clearly and we'll talk about uh, some really pivotal scenes that reveal how they really how their relationship grows and builds. And they essentially die for one another, like they die with each other, which is a dramatic summation that I'm sure Kelly would be like, Psh, they don't die for one. And that's too dramatic. But <laughs> anyhow, were you going to, were you going to say something, uh, Dave, to the. Uh, just to the effect of the beginning, which I really, really enjoy the cold open of this movie, which it does create kind of the elliptical structure that we discover as the story goes on. Uh, and as you just described, the sort of opening shot of a barge coming down a river. So, and like, you can hear the sounds of like industry and trains in the background. So it, it clearly conveys like a 20th century or 20th or 21st century modernity. Um, but then the remains that are discovered are, are dug out by hand. And it's it's this sort of, I don't know, the character literally like sifting through time in terms of like the soil and everything to uncover these things. And really a, a really nice opportunity to transport us from a, sort of a, a vague conception of what the story might be into the past uh, and to then go on to establish the characters. Yeah, so uh, I, I love that opening too because yeah, I mean, it's it's an investigation into the past that this character that we don't meet again, just this modern day woman walking her dog and then finding this these two skeletons uh, that have been buried with the mud of time, uh, and then that's our that's our portal into the story. Um, Wait, I just, I'm so sorry, Christine. I, I don't mean to interrupt. Um, I do think that that's a, like a, a really like interesting moment, but I could not turn off the, the true crime fan in me being like, mm. and you just, you just unearthed that those skeletons yourself. Like you're not, you're not calling anybody. Your dog's not trying to go after that. I, like I had some, I had some thoughts and concerns, but suspension of disbelief. It's okay. You no, know, I, and I, that's, 
Go ahead, Connor. Sam, I was, this sounds, I, I also cannot turn. There were a few things operating this beginning. In a vacuum, I really enjoyed this cold open, but right away it's in four by three and the Snyder Cut has been all their age. And I just couldn't, and then Sam, you texted about it too. So I, and, I, and like there's a ship and the train. I was like, did I buy the wrong movie or did I like get the wrong movie? But it was the right one. And then I was also like, but what if those bodies were buried in like the 70s or 80s? And what if like your dog just saliva over DNA and now, I don't know, like, I had a heart. I don't Not know. Not everyone is true crime or true crime laureates. You know, it's some yeah. people find something they're going to dig it up. But these, these are really, uh, these are really important questions. And I just talked about how Kelly Breitkart loves, uh, like, like process, like to to depict process and mundane details of everyday life. And well, how would someone cook something, or what would it take to start a fire? But holding her to that same standard means exactly this, questioning why would a character decide to completely unearth two full skeletons underneath mud without calling? Maybe she, maybe she pulled out her phone while the camera wasn't looking. But I think those are actually very important questions to ask. As for the 4-3, so apparently... Uh, in a recent interview, she said she would not have shot this movie in 4.3 if she knew it was going to be pulled from theaters so early because she said it looks like shit on streaming services. Mm, that's a bummer. Oh, no. And so I think this is like a really interesting uh, sort of background or, or pulling behind the curtain is, or pulling the curtain away to really understand considerations that directors make uh, and the limitations some or or the complications that like theater releases versus streaming service releases can pose when a director <clears throat> is trying to figure out how their movie is best watched. Also uh, talking to friends and people that watched it, they're like, the movie was so friggin' dark. I could barely see what was going on in certain times. And there are moments where when we first meet King Lou, is it night when Cookie is out trying to find scavenge for food to cook for the fur trappers? Uh, he encounters this uh, naked, hungry person in the bushes who we realize is this, the other protagonist of this movie. And he's like, I'm hungry. Do you have any food? Cookie brings him back to the encampment or back to the fur trapper fire and feeds him, hides, uh, like provides him a safe sleeping area. But you can barely see what's going on because it's so dark. She probably intended there's the cinematographer is uh, Chris Blovelt, uh, Chris Blovelt, who does a lot of her other movies. Uh, but she also but I think also some of the uh, darkness came from the fact that in another interview I watched, she mentioned that she spent over a week working on the color of the movie for theater screens and only like eight, eight hours working on the color for TV and streaming releases, thinking, okay, my movie's gonna be watched in theaters, like it's gonna, this is how most people are gonna watch it. I'll deal with the bullshit of streaming later. But her, her movie went straight to like Apple Plus and then Amazon when it was pulled. So these are little tidbits that I was learning about things that I never, considerations I never really thought about uh, and director's decisions to do like, Framing, color for TV versus theater. So that's my or movie theater releases. So that was my little tangent on 
understanding more complicated context behind the darkness of a lot of some of the shots and the three, four, I know, look at the three, four after justice league was really, was really funny. <laughs> it's a time honored aspect ratio. Snyder didn't invent it. Let's <laughs> just be clear. No, but it's like, now that he's done it, it's like, uh, yeah. And but, if you didn't put the, this is, this is Zack Snyder's vision to keep yeah. it in for like, honor his integrity as like, if I, I think if that little blue, you know, title card wasn't there, none of us would still be talking about it. <laughs> Yeah. Um, Christine, I, I wanted to mention this. So not, I don't always mean to bring up Twilight, but like for some reason, it just continues to be relevant. So this movie and the first Twilight movie, the color scheme is <laughs> identical. And um, it makes me feel like that might just be what the Pacific Northwest looks like. At the, I know it's not, but like at this point, I'm just like, yeah, it all, everything just has like this little blue tint to it. I could totally buy it 100%. I mean, as far as the darkness is concerned too, I, I don't understand that criticism necessarily because like I, I, I I feel as though even the first time I watched it, I could see and get a sense of all the important things that were going on, but shrouded in this darkness that illustrates uh, in a cinematic and aesthetic sense, the vastness of that darkness and, and the vastness of the place that they find themselves in and the mystery and par potential peril of it at night, uh, I think is important to that sense of darkness. And I think is is appropriately shuffled in because it's not like we're seeing like, it's not like say, this is just a random example, but it's not like a Wonder Woman 84 situation where we're seeing her fight Cheetah and like it's it's dark because they're trying to cover up for cut corners as far as CGI. This is like functionally dark and it's it's not covering anything. I still get a sense of what's going on. Yeah. And uh, it adds uh, I mean, it's it's naturalistic, too. Uh, I think she relies on a lot of natural light uh, for both nighttime and uh, interior shots. And so, yeah, I think I like your point, Dave, of, of portraying or depicting the vastness of these dense, dense, dense woods, um, where before they get to the encampment, there's like nobody else around. But, uh, but yeah, I, I it's, it's also, it, it was just funny to see a director be just sort of like, oh, people are really watching it that way. Like she like, she, <laughs> it's just getting insight into her, her amazing brain and her own insecurities about <laughs> releasing a movie in ways that she did not uh, intend it to be seen or at least for a while. So as far as like understanding sort of context of the plot, we've just, we've just met King Lou uh, who was running away from Russian fur trappers. We later learned that he got entangled in um, a really intense situation where one of his previous companions was shot by some Russian fur traders, and then he, uh, in self-defense, shot and killed another trapper. So he's on the run right from the get-go uh, and is in this really dire circumstance. Yeah, it describes these uh, these Russians that he was traveling with as uh, accusing his friend of theft and then quote gutting him from neck to groin. So a lot of so while we don't really see much of any depictions of gore or death in the movie, there is this very uh, intense and life or death uh, backdrop or or uh, understanding that survival is key that any encounter gone wrong really means a life or death situation, even though mm -hmm. this movie depicts 
particular meetings and actions kind of slowly and quietly. There's this danger and element of urgency and survival that I think pervades uh, the the whole movie. And so I'm glad you you mentioned that very uh, grotesque depiction of just, yeah, slicing someone up. And it being off screen, which is nice, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So even yeah, just the way that um, uh, Orion Lee uh, taught, like delivers that line is 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 really effectively shivery, bone curdling, blood curdling. You can't curdle your bones. You curdle your. <laughs> you blood. shouldn't. That would be terrifying. Um, I, I think what Christine, just to kind of go back to your point about this danger as a backdrop. Uh, a super cool setting, 1820s Oregon country. I don't think I've ever seen a movie set in this time period. And one that's not like a Lewis and Clark save America, you know, kind of adventure story. And so I think that's what makes Cookie such an interesting protagonist is that we, the cold open shows him and his, this, these two skeletons quickly, you know, ne- you know, jumping to the, you know, at the start of the movie, we realize, oh, this is probably Cookie, the main guy, he's probably one of the skeletons, and he's just picking mushrooms, and it's like a really beautiful day, and I had a hard time kind of like pinning down how to describe Cookie, because simple's not the right word, but he's like wholesome, and sort of just like is present, he is where he is, he has dreams of the future, but it, I would not call him ambitious in but- a way, like, and all his dreams involve helping other people. He either right. wants to be a cook or he wants to open a t- hotel for weary travelers. Yeah, there's this real, there's this real, uh, you know, duck out of water, like out of place sentimentality that he has in cleaving his way through a world that is so often defined by the sort of more rugged individuals that are on the periphery of the film. And he's such a wonderful character to have to be our eyes and to like take us through this world because it'd be such a different movie if we followed king lou that'd be, it'd be such a different movie if we weren't following mm-hmm. it through cookie's eyes and so i think that was a really what helped me propel me through the movie was uh setting him up as just collecting mushrooms he takes a little salamander and like flips him back over so he can like save him and crawl away so i think just a really like earnest opening to a character in a really dangerous world i always think when i see that moment where he flips the lizard back on its feet is I think of the scene in Blade Runner in the interview and he's like there's a turtle on its back and it's in the middle of the desert like what do you do like thinking about those moments is you're one of two people you're either the person that's going to leave the animal on its back and to roast or freeze or you're going to put it back on is Cookie a replicant (laughs) is he a replicant um yeah I think going off of what you were saying Connor as far as the story being through Cookie's eyes, I think that upon multiple rewatches of this movie, I found myself focusing on different characters. The first time I saw this movie, I really was following Cookie. And then in rewatches, it was really King Lou who I was, was watching and was really fascinated by him. And in fact, the movie, the, the story that the movie is based on, Half-Life, King Lou has an entire half of this novel. I haven't read it, and mm. I think I will pick it up and talk about it. And you hear mentions in the dialogue in the movie, oh, I've been to London, I've been... He, uh, he's been all over the world. And so in the in the book, we, we see his, his adventures. He's really worldly. And then you just see kind of mentions of that uh, in, in just the dialogue in the movie. Yeah, that's interesting, because, I mean... Uh... 
in my notes, I have here that we learned that he's traveled pretty much far and wide and names all these places, but we never really get into the, the details of those travels. All that we really get is his quote that, um, that he sees something new in this land that he hasn't seen before. This is still new. Um, which by contrast, Cookie says, it doesn't seem new to me. It seems old. And then Lou reports, everything is old. If you look at it that way, history isn't here yet. It's coming, but we got here early this time. Uh, maybe this time we can be ready for it. We can take it on our own terms. So yeah, in a way we, we don't get a very rich understanding of where Lou has been and where his travels have taken him, but we do get a sense that he is finding this to be a unique place to find himself both in terms of location and time in history having traveled a lot of the world. And I, I'm glad you brought up that conversation too. Uh, I wanted to talk, yeah, I wanted to focus on that moment of dialogue, especially because I think the story Kelly kind of used and the screenwriters use there at that dialogue to kind of parse through what new people in this area, different perspectives of what this land is. I mean, it, it was... Chinook land uh, and the the language that King Lou uh, speaks, uh, well, the Native American characters speak, uh, and then King Lou has a whole like conversation with a character later on in the movie is uh, Chinook Wawa, and the movie production team worked on like with a with a linguist to really understand what language would have been spoken in that area, and so it's like sort of immigrants, settlers, occupiers on this, like, what is this land? How is this land being perceived? People were already living there, um, was the Chinook people and the surrounding other tribes. Uh, but in others' perspective, like King Lou is like a entrepreneur. He's like, you know, business, there's opportunity here. There's so much like open space to do something with it. I've traveled far and wide and I see this as, a, as an area of opportunity. And then Cookie is like, well, things seem kind of old, sort of like, also a perspective of, well, things are already here. There's nature, there's people. And so perceptions of history and of time, those sort of like differing perspectives. Uh, and so I love that dialogue that like says a lot in a very small and sort of minimal way, um, mm. but also like broadens out the really complex conversations of what was going on in that area. And yeah. Which is sort of like Reichardt's kind of magic touches concerns like the unity of express information and its pacing uh, because another movie would have just like fast tracked that conversation and, and blown it out into like a more exaggerated and uh, <clears throat> a more performative version of those characters where like maybe Lou is like, no, I could see like we could plan. There could be like this many uh, warehouses or like this much, uh, this much, this new town or like all this other stuff. But instead it's just an intimate conversation about the two of them and how they perceive the land in a physical sense, without all those details, even though it expresses all of that in a, a quiet and understated way through subtext. So, yeah. So we so we have these moments where they've met, they're talking, they're they have sort of made a base camp, or so to kind of connect it with uh, some of the some of the plot. They reunite back at the base camp uh, and find each other. And then King Lou has already set up a little house outside of the outside of the settlement. He invites Cookie to come live with him. And so we get some moments of them just walking around talking about their dreams, essentially, 
Whereas Dave, you mentioned Cookie wants to open a hotel. Uh, King Lou really sees opportunity for business, like for different types of business. King Lou is always doing things. He's he's either knitting, he's um, starting fires, he's sweeping in the home and things like that. And so he's very industrious. And so eventually they catch wind of this cow that is brought into the settlement, this obviously this first cow that has been purchased by a character named Chief Factor, played by Toby Jones, uh, which I couldn't figure out whether it was his title or whether it was his name, but I couldn't get any other information besides that he's just referred to as Chief Factor. I think that's got to be a title, yeah. Uh, yeah, and so he's this really wealthy <laughs> this, I'm English. Chief Factor. Yeah, <laughs> Toby Jones. <laughs> he's just this really, really rich English dude who has decided to invest in the fur trade out in this area and is a big, he's basically going to make bank uh, by exploiting workers mm -hmm. and <laughs> by owning a shit, or yeah, stealing a shit ton of land, basically. So he, he, brings this cow because he wants milk for his fine life. Um, and <laughs> Cookie and uh, and King decide that they can milk the cow at night, get the milk and make it, uh, use it to make oily cakes, these delicious kind of bisque, like oily biscuits made in a, made in a fryer, which Cookie can whip up really easily. And then they've been selling these in the, during the day in the settlement. And they are, they are, I guess, I don't know where this term comes from. They're selling like hotcakes because they are hotcakes. Uh, <laughs> and they start making a shit ton of money. And uh, so we see this, they've, they've, their, their new business has been launched. Um, and Chief Factor decides to taste one of these oily cakes. And he's like, oh my God, this is so good. Uh, and he actually has them make this fancy cake uh, and invites them to attend this gathering that Chief Factor is hosting for um, uh, a local captain uh, who's in charge of some military operation somewhere else. Don't get too much details for, uh, around him. And then uh, one of the Chinook chiefs who's also brought to to his his house. And so basically, to sum up, they. Cookie makes an amazing cake for the Chief Factor, but uh, that night, while they're milking the cow, Chief Factor's team catches them in the act, and they have to go on the run. And I'm skipping over a lot of plot, but essentially to give you the arc of it, the middle section is there is their heist, where they are milking at night, selling during the day, making so much. And it does follow a classic sort of heist. It's like, one more milking, one more job. Their it one more job. Though, Lou, yeah, Lou is always like moving the goalposts a little bit further ahead. It's like, well, we got this much money, but like if we get a little more than that hotel, that can happen. And like, da 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 da. And so this is a wonderful progression because it shows that even two of these very sensitive characters, Cookie clearly cares about other people. King Lou cares about it. He like they also care about each other. This is a really growing friendship that they that they develop they get caught up in the business and in the industry. And so they see how much money they're making. They want to get to San Francisco. And uh, so they just keep milking this cow and being like, we, we hope we don't get caught. Uh, even though somebody who's had 
a Clarfu tea, which is what the chief factor wants them to make, will probably know that it has milk in it. And where else would they get milk besides this first cow? So, yeah, so that's kind of how they get caught up in this in this runaway runaway milk heist. But I want to go quickly back to something that Connor mentioned, this being kind of a slice of life story. And I think that was a great phrase to use in connection to this movie, because Kelly talks a lot about writing stories and uh, portraying stories of people just passing through. She really likes this notion of of catching people just in like times in their life. Now, this is a pretty dramatic time in Cookie and King Lou's life. Uh, But I guess this notion, uh, like, do we see any character arcs or do we see like any changes happen within these characters, even though it's just a passing through narrative? Or do you think that the, that Cookie and King Lou kind of maintain sort of their same selves throughout the story? Is it weird to say that this movie's not really about like character changes, like character goes from A to B to C to like fulfill the hero's journey of blah, blah, blah. Um, I think there is some like I think talking about King Lou going to like perspective, like can you can we really trust him? Has he really been to London and all of these faraway places? Um, does he really have Cookie's best interest at heart? Like Cookie believes in him and we want to believe in him as audiences. Um, and so I think the end of the movie, whether those tales he told were tall tales or fully genuine, I think he does have a nice moment of he could have just left him. I think there were a few times where he could have just bounced and took the money, uh, but instead he decided that there's, you know, cookies worth being around, worth helping, um, whether it's, and I don't think by the end of, maybe it started as just a way to make money and to pay him back because he, you know, helped him and the you know, cookie helped him in the beginning. But by the end, it seems like there's a genuine desire to connect with cookie on a personal level and not just on a monetary or, you know, capitalistic level. Mm. Yeah, I think it's a difficult movie to talk about in terms of like conventional character arc, especially because it to me feels so much more focused on uh, like an alternative take of the the classic pioneer kind of framework of just like we we are seeing two more like uh, out of place in their compassion and tenderness figures sort of juxtaposed against this harsh backdrop, and it is. M- to me as much about their like growing tenderness and, and fondness and and trust in and support of each other as it is about the rising tension of the other elements that escalate uh kind of in the midst of their story and and, and the place in time place and time that they literally find themselves in as an antagonistic force against the kind of intuitive and deeply character driven and and heartfelt tenderness in a place where that is often met with violence or or exploitation. I don't know. It, it, it's kind of really hard to sum up, but I think the movie does a lot more with its themes than it does with character arc, even though these characters are developed. Like thematic driven instead of purely plot driven. Yeah, or, or internally character driven, mm-hmm. I guess. Because, I, I mean, I think these characters are very developed, but I don't think that their uh their principles well i don't know it's it's hard to say because like it, it it to me is largely about how the environment they're they're in doesn't suit who they are who they are as characters and how 
uh, they find themselves at odds with the place they're trying to cleave uh, a noble and compassionate path through, if that makes any sense. I don't know. It's hard to explain. <laughs> no, it definitely does. It's something that I've, I've definitely been thinking about. Um, and as I had mentioned before, I was really sort of focusing on the character of Cookie uh, the first time I was watching the movie. But then King Lou was really the character that I keep thinking about um, because... Because, yeah, there are moments like where he's sort of always on to the next thing. Oh, well, if we can't do this and we can do this. Oh, yeah, just uh, one more bucket of milk means like 12 more cakes means like, you know, 40 more little silver pieces or coins or whatever. And so he, in a way, he he's kind of like pushing the enterprise. Um, but I, I feel like the the point where that King Lou reaches by the end of the story as you said, Connor, he, so to fill listeners in after they get separate, so they get caught the final heist when they're milking this cow and they have to go on the run. And so chief factors, men are after them. King Lou eventually makes it back to the, uh, to their little house. Uh, but cookie has hit his head. Probably it has in like a concussion or internal bleeding or something really, really is messed up with him. He passes out, is taken in uh, by some strangers uh, nearby, and he wakes up in this strange house. Also another insight into sort of compassion for a stranger, kind of, uh, we don't really know much about these other characters, but it's just a little moment of... It is an indigenous person, too, that takes him in and cares for him, isn't that? I believe so. Um, and they, they aren't, there's no conversation, nothing, it's just... He's brought in, he sleeps the night, uh, he gets up. We see just these two characters like at a distance. And then he moves on, reunites with King Lou, but it's really clear that Cookie is in a really bad way and might already be dying or not in a stayed state to continue a long journey. But King Lou is like, all right, we got to go. He grabs the bag of money and then they get into the, they venture back out into the woods as chief factors men are after him. And as you pointed out, Connor, at any point, King Lou could have just split. And I'm sure the smart thing, as far as like looking out for oneself, the smart thing would have been to just, yeah, I've got this huge bag of money. I can make it to San Francisco and I don't need this other person. But he stays with Cookie the whole time and lays down with him and is like, okay, we'll rest the night here. Cookie, just go to sleep. I'll stay up. I'll stay watch. I'll look out uh, and keep watch. And it's just a beautiful, oh God, I think Orion Lee's performance is so, it's understated, but it's so beautiful. Uh, and he's like, I'll just keep watch. And I think his last line is something like, we'll go soon. Uh, I've, yeah, I've got you. And then he just, he lays down himself, closes his eyes, and puts his arm uh, and hand on Cookie. And then where it's understood that they're shot by one of Chief Factor's men. Uh, and so that is a pivotal moment where King Lou, yeah, decides to stay with his friend and not move on. And so I, I feel like as far as a as a transformation, or maybe it maybe wasn't even always a transformation. Maybe it's King Lou a huge part of him that is not necessarily revealed at the beginning, but that really shines through at the end because we don't get a whole lot with these characters is that he at underneath all of his like 
entrepreneurship fire, compassion and caring is an essential part of his being as well. Well, yeah. And I think especially in the sense that like, it does subvert our expectations in the sense that in terms of it being about this era, because this era is so oft painted with like this compassionless, like man against nature. And, you know, they have to cleave their way through on their own and like compassionate connection to other people can get you killed or risk your fortune or your, your advantage. But this isn't a movie that's about the pioneer lifestyle or frontier as, as has been cinematically explored and established so many times. This is a story about moments of compassion existing within that world, realistically conveying the cost and, and danger of living that way in that era and in that place and time, but is really satisfying in subverting in a cinematic sense, the quote unquote frontier as framed by American film. Yeah. It's like, fight, survive, take what's your or what you deem and consider is yours. Um, yeah. And it definitely departs from, from And that. there are some other moments like too that really kind of stand out for me in that sense with like characters that have almost no dialogue or no dialogue that are just on the periphery of this as well, where like we just get a shot of a man uh, within the town who's caring for a hatchling with a, a small bird with this kind of like feeding it with this kind of strange tenderness. And we also have when they're first selling the cakes, there's there's this one kind of like younger uh, pioneer guy who's who's among the rabble and like they all get one. And he's kind of left standing there with that without one. And it just sort of holds on him for a moment before he shuffles away as someone who has been like, you know, people have cut in line because they're stronger or whatever. So it does have these weird like occasional highlights of like tenderness does exist in this world. It's just not what we're familiar with because the framing of these stories is always such a hyper-masculine uh, manifest destiny attitude as opposed to the compassionate reality of people that actually did occupy this space. You know, realistically speaking, it's just that those aren't the stories that we so often tell. And that character is the one who ultimately, we're to under- assume, kills King Lou and Cookie. That's um, true. Which is an amazing detail that I I, I knew by the end of the movie that that was him, but watching the movie again, I focused on him because he ends up being one of the most pivotal characters because he (laughs) kills them at the end. But it's just a wonderful way. We don't get any dialogue from that character. No words come out of that guy's mouth, but we see moments where he doesn't, he like, he's like a he's like 16 or 17. And all he wants to do is stand in line and get an oily cake. And you could see the look on his face, like, you know, it's like scarcity. I didn't get one. Mm-hmm. I wanted that taste of home, which everyone was like, oh, this is just, uh, just warms me up inside. And you can see that sort of like simmering resentment. And it, and in a way, you can't blame him. He sees an opportunity to survive and get money. So he kills these two main characters and we assume goes off with the money. He's been bullied by Chief Fat. We, he ends up he works for Chief Factor. He's the youngest guy on Chief Factor's crew. He gets bullied by the older men. They are always ordering him around. And so as we talked about earlier, this idea, this sort of backdrop or sort of underlying understanding of aggression and survival and death and very life or death situations, we see this young teenage character emerging in that world and being like, well, what I've scene modeled is I got to take what's mine and I got to kill for it as like 
sort of this sort of capitalistic mindset and structure that's being imposed on land where other realities of compassion and growth and community and togetherness could have like we're already there with like the indigenous people that were living there and then also these other characters that are showing moments of that as well but it's like this new aggressive force is is then imposed yeah on this this region but anyhow it's just little characters i keep in in like encountering uh every time i've ever watched this movie but i guess the last question i i would have um for folks is so we talked about this idea of these huge themes that this uh, this movie addresses um of capitalism, colonial occupation, environmental destruction with the beaver trade, all of this stuff. It's a lot. I mean, the movie is like addressing a lot of these themes, but it addresses on such a small scale, this sort of passing through narrative slice of life, as Connor had mentioned. I would say like, what do you think, I guess we've explored what the benefits of this style of storytelling are. Do you think there are any like, drawbacks to keeping a story on such a small scale and in a minimal uh so minimalist like are there things we wanted more sam had talked a little bit about more from maybe more of the relationship knowing more about the relationship between uh cookie and king lou were there any things we wanted more and couldn't really settle with the ambiguity or small scale of the storytelling i think i got all i needed I think I think it says things across the board in exploring its themes. Christine, as you've highlighted it, in in a more understated way, in order to afford it a, a, a little more sincerity and integrity to its its presentation as a slice of life. So I think it keeps everything very in check and very well balanced, largely via its its pacing and its its sort of more methodical approach. So I I think there are yeah there are some some questions that I have, but I'm. I'm not bothered by having those questions in the sense that I feel the movie failed to give me enough information. I think they're just questions that are just like uh, born out of curiosity, not out of a want for more from this work. Yeah, I think that if you add any more, it really runs the risk of like not being that slice of life. And stuff that I was left wondering, I feel like if it was addressed, it would be an entirely different film. Like I was really curious about the history of it all. So like, how did this person end up here? Um, You know, it's the 1820s. How is this possible? What's going on over here? And I would have loved to explore like the indigenous population's relationship with like this, um, you know, colonialism um what's the word i'm actually looking for colonizer um kind of atmosphere so i would have liked to see more of that but that is an entirely different movie so i don't think i was missing it though yeah it's like the moments you see um the chinook chief in chief factor's house and then uh the the woman uh that is sitting in the parlor with Chief Factor, is Chief Factor's wife, um, who from, I didn't pick up on this, but like the plot, like I was reading the plot and apparently it's the the Chinook Chief's daughter who was then married 
Toby Jones's character, which I would never have picked up. But there's this moment where she's interpreting between her father and Toby Jones. And like there was so much I wanted to know about her life. And she's played by Lily Gladstone, who has been in a previous Kelly Reichardt movie, Certain Women. And she is a a performer to watch. She's going to be in Martin Scorsese's new movie uh, with... Leonardo DiCaprio, the un- unrecognizable Leonardo DiCaprio. I don't know. Did you guys see that? Anyhow, look out for Lily Gladstone. She is awesome. So I want to give give her a shout out. But yeah, there, there are moments that I would have loved to like parse out, like know a little bit more about um, her life and that dynamic. But Kelly likes to do things where some characters don't get much speaking time or dialogue, but she situates sure uh, she positions situations in a way where you're like on repeated watches can kind of figure out dynamic implied relationships dynamics um which which are really fun to to examine closely i yeah are there i could go on forever but i want to for respecting uh time in the sake of this conversation are there any final thoughts we have about uh first cow i'm so glad to talk with you guys about this movie and about kelly reichardt this has been a lot of fun any last lingering there's one scene that i just really wanted to bring up and i mentioned it at the very beginning of the episode but it's I think a great example of one of the strengths of kelly of kelly reichardt as a filmmaker of just sort of letting the movie and the script and the characters just do their thing, not making it overwrought or overworking it. And it's the scene of when the this military captain is in the chief factor's house and the chief factor is talking about a mutiny that was, I guess, recently on uh, this captain's ship and going over the punishments that the men who mutinied received. And um, as they're kind of going over these gruesome lashings, the chief factor saying, well, sometimes a dead man can send a bigger message and make other people more productive than just whipping the person and not killing them who betrayed you. As uh, Cookie and Lou are walking up to give the clafouti to the chief factor and kind of come to this party, super ominous scene as, as they're kind of like, you see them in the windows of this like modern house as they're walking around. And I just thought that was, that was by far my favorite scene in the whole movie of just really ratcheting up the tension in a super organic and not forced and character driven uh, and world driven way. And even though they're talking about horrific punitive, like pun, like, like, Oh God, it's terrible. But there's something darkly comedic about that whole scene. Like Toby Jones's character wanting to like impress this, just like gross captain there's this, it's gross but there were some moments of of comedy in it that are horrifying but it's funny that she leaves breathing room for characters to kind of play with the language in maybe ways that they that they want yeah it's it's a really interesting i'm glad you pointed that out, that scene out uh to connor and it just makes me think of trust that she has and trust that the character that the actors and the script and everything sort of working cohesively together. Yeah, it's, I, I really, it's, I'm, I'm excited to see her, her next movie is going to be about 
potters, like ceramic artists <laughs> in Portland. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't know if I really want to watch that movie, but I'll I'll follow her down that journey <laughs> if that's really what she wants to do. Yeah, I guess I'd quickly add that. Um, yeah, I really I, I appreciate the vision of this work. Uh, I think that it, it, like Meek's Cutoff, speaks to lesser told stories in a very overtread and overexplored and largely fictionalized uh, pioneer landscape um, that is so often within cinema and within storytelling, uh, at least in the Western, specifically U.S. sense, is so so whitewashed and so self-justified by a manifest destiny. And I think that this takes its jabs at that in a very thoughtful way by presenting us with an unexpe- a, a story of unexpected tenderness and friendship that uh, is set against an environment where that tenderness doesn't become distractingly like overpronounced as a tone because it is met with an environment of tension and uh and danger um so i think it's 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 very well measured and very well balanced especially by its uh more methodical editing and writing style so i think across the board much like meek's cut off i found it to be slow and meditative but um ultimately rewarding and thoughtful in a lot of the ways that it portrays uh an already very familiar cinematic and storytelling landscape and sam i have to ask did you prefer this to meek's cut off yeah. <laughs> I sort, think, of, sort of figured. Yeah, no offense, Christine, but I think that I would prefer nearly anything to me. <laughs> oh, Meek's cut off. Yeah, it will, it will, oh, ever, oh, if we could only just get Kelly on the podcast and just be like, tell us, tell us about Meek's cut I mean, I love, I love Meek's cut off, but yeah, it's not for, it's not for everyone in the squeaking bucket. Well, I'm so glad we finally got to talk about Kelly in her in her full glory. Yeah, she she'll continue to go far. Look out for for her in the future uh, and her, her her story about ceramicists in Portland. But uh, this was a wonderful conversation, and thank you guys so much for your thoughtful insights um, as we continue our director's spotlight. Um, as always, check out uh, uh, Butter With That on Instagram. You can send us an email uh, at butterwiththatpodcast at gmail.com. Hell yeah. Uh, and just, yeah, drop us a line. Tell us what you think. As always, uh, have a wonderful afternoon or evening or morning whenever you're listening to this. Do other folks have uh, any shout outs or things on their mind all right well have have a great rest of your whatever um and uh we'll catch you we'll catch you next time with uh with our next director spotlight take it easy everyone and uh yeah have a good one have a good whatever have a good whatever have a good milkshake <laughs> oh yeah oh my god maybe i'll try i'll make some oily cakes they look really good. They're like little, really like little cronut donuts.